0: So, welcome back to the Queer Q. In today's episode, we'll be taking you on a journey with Gus Von Sant's third feature film, My Own Private Idaho, starring River Phoenix and Keanu Reeves.
1: I only have sex with a guy for money, and two guys can't love each other. I love you, and you
0: don't pay me. My Own Private Idaho is a road movie of two hustling male prostitutes, Mike Waters and Scott Faber, who embark on a journey in search for Mike's long-lost mother. Mike, played by River Phoenix, suffers from narcolepsy and comes from poverty. His hustling between varying clienteles is a key to his his survival on the streets. Scott, who's portrayed by Keanu Reeves, comes from an affluent family a polarizing lifestyle from Mike and hustles to satisfy his ego and ruffle the feathers of the proper rich boy his father desires him to be.
1: Mike and Scott's journey, it spans the Pacific Northwest. They travel the road through Portland, Seattle, and then make it to the Midwest to Idaho on the back of a stolen motorcycle. And their adventures even land them in Rome at one point. Their journey on the road is tinged with desire and longing, one longing for a home and the other longing to escape it. Gus Van Sant adds to the esteem of independent filmmaking and the new cinema era with My Own Private Idaho through the varying narrative styles, drops of Shakespearean dialogue, and stunning visuals of quiet, private moments on the road. So, Alina, tell me your thoughts on My Own Private Idaho.
0: So, I love this film. This is the second time I've seen it, but the last time I, I saw it was like undergraduate year of college. So that's been a while. Um, but watching it again, I really got to intake the beauty of those nature shots. For instance, like the shots of the time-lapse of the mountains and the clouds, um, the salmon swimming upstream, all those nature shots in the long road, um, Really were more compelling and more vivid this time to me, um, especially like I don't know if you noticed, I thought the colors were more were very saturated, um, and very prominent. And I think Gus Van Sant really like knows how to pick his color palette in his films. Visually, those were the things that I really loved about the film. Um, overall, uh, what I love the most about this film is this unrequited love this longing that river phoenix brings out in mike waters his performance is my favorite thing throughout this film so what did you think about it
1: well i definitely have to agree with you about river phoenix i loved his performance in this film i think that his performance really ties together the different narratives that we find in here and he really is the beating heart of this film and um i just really enjoyed being able to see him again this is uh, the second time that i've seen it also and i definitely agree about a lot of those visuals that we see in those shots and adding another color is that salmon color we see that salmon pink mm-hmm. color on different walls different outfits that mike wears and it's very interesting um, when we're contemplating that color choice with those so- those shots of the salmon Swimming upstream. So, mm-hmm. very interesting. But um, yeah, I definitely love this film specifically because of River Phoenix. And I really enjoyed what it did for new queer cinema. And it's one of the films that was really defining for that type of queer representation bring, being brought into a more elevated and mainstream format. So, let's get
0: to it yes let's talk about that opening scene yeah um so we well we first start off the first shot we see is of a dictionary defining narcolepsy because our main protagonist mike um, has is narcoleptic and so what that is is basically you suffer from again correct me if i'm wrong um suffer from brief attacks of deep sleep at random moments that can be triggered by emotional, stressful situations. Got it. <laughs> awesome. Uh, moving on from that opening shot of the dictionary scene, we then go into Mike on the long road, on this long road that we see throughout the film that he's always on um, in Idaho. And I really like the shot where he, where Gus edits to a vignette of the mountains because um, Mike saw, it looks like someone's face like a fucked up face
1: mm-hmm. yeah i loved how the shot as soon as he put his hand over his face mm-hmm. it instantly went to that tunnel look at the mountains along that long stretch of road now mm-hmm. my only thing is and i'm really curious what you thought but i paused it because i really wanted to look at that and i i didn't see a, fucked up see face. a face i was like I Wait, no i'm like <laughs> no i'm like is there something wrong with me? Because I don't see a face here, but I'm like, maybe there's something behind that. Maybe there's, you know, there's not actually a face, you know, into in these mountains here, but maybe this is him projecting onto something, but you, you actually saw a face, so.
0: I think, again, that's because my family, we used to do so many road trips. We used to go camping so much when I was younger and like we would be driving through the deserts, um, driving to Nevada to go to our camping site and me and my sisters would just be like looking out the window, looking out clouds, making faces out of everything or like so like finding abstract things in, you know, and so that's something I really resonated with. And so what it is, if you look at it again, the two mm-hmm. green bushes at the end are the eyeballs and then like the clouds hanging over are like the mouth and like the mountains is its nose in a way. So definitely go back and look at it. You, you see, you'll you see a face like trust me you'll see a face unless you know i'm high on something all the time but like <laughs>
1: <laughs> no it's just a really fucked up face yeah it's he a really fucked joking. up face
0: <laughs> um but what do you think he meant do you think there's anything behind that other than like we just get an insight to mike's the way mike's mind works or do you think oh, yeah. like there was something more to it? Cause I didn't think there was anything more to it, but like, I'm wondering if you saw something there.
1: Well, see, because since I didn't see the face, mm. I was reading into it and I definitely did feel like this was a really, a really good way of introducing Mike to the audience and how his mind works, the type of person he is. But, mm-hmm. you know, his whole journey is really trying to find his mom and Mm. this type of connection that he's been missing. And, you know, the whole thing I thought of was he's trying to find this type of connection wherever he's looking. And so, Mm. you know, he's looking at this, you know, stretch of land and all of these different components of nature to make a face. And it's like, he's looking for that type of human connection wherever he's going. And, that, that's how I ran into it I probably ran into it a little no, too much because
0: I actually really agree with that um thinking about on it just because you know he is alone on this road and he's mm-hmm. isolated from you know things that kind of connect him to you know society and, and like because we see in that scene where he's talking to the rabbit right and he's like and the rabbit's like mm-hmm. about to hop away and he's like where do you think you're going we're both on this road together and like he starts howling so i definitely i definitely agree with what you're saying that he's looking for this human connection and so that's why maybe his mind forms that face at the end of the road because that's what he's longing for in the end is to have a human connection whether it be finding his mother again or finding someone else to bond with i i definitely like that analysis
1: yeah, and it's it'll definitely be very interesting once we get to the end to really mm-hmm. compare this opening shot with what we're left at at the end and mm-hmm. to see exactly if he was able to achieve that or not. We won't spoil it yet, so we'll get to that.
0: Not yet. Um, basically, then after... He passes out on the road. We get these stunning visuals of the open road, of mountains, of clouds drifting in the sky, and they're all intercutted with a close-up of Mike's face um, as he's getting, as a man is performing fellatio on him, as he's getting a blowjob, Mm -hmm. and and so we get introduced to Mike's character. We learn that he he's a male hustler. He's a prostitute. trying to survive on the streets and we move on to the scene we're in portland correct
1: um we're in In seattle
0: seattle okay so in the we're in seattle right now in the beginning scene Mm -hmm. Um, and he goes back to this really elite kind of upper middle class neighborhood with this woman and when he walks in he we see two other male prostitutes uh scott and gary And so here we are introduced to Scott, um, played by Keanu Reeves, and we also get another, um, Mike also gets triggered into another narcoleptic episode um, when this Jane Doe tries to engage sexually with him.
1: Fun fact that Jane Doe is played by Grace Zabriskie, and anybody who watches um, Big Love will know who Grace Zabriskie is. But, you know... We have this older woman who is coming on to him, and I think it, it it just reminded him so much of his mom and searching for his mom, so it put him into that narcoleptic state.
0: And then this also leads into um, uh, Scott and Gary come pick him up and drag him outside of the house and like lay him down on the lawn. We get shots of this fancy neighborhood, and I think there's a window shot of this domestic this couple having a fight while Scott gives this monologue about his father.
1: I think it's the perfect way to introduce Scott, his relationship to his father and Mm -hmm. just exactly the type of person he is who comes from means, but is looking to rebel against this, this type of lifestyle that his father wants for him. It's, you know, that classic type of um, son rebelling against his father you know, rebelling against this type of society. But the magazine scene, right? Scott is just trying to reassert his heterosexual identity, you know, that this isn't really who he is. This is just something that he's doing. And he wants to make it clear that he is not gay and that he Um, if he ever did enter into some type of relationship where he's not receiving that transaction money for sex, then, you know, he would consider himself to be gay. He would consider that to be gay. And so this is a way of letting us know that he's not going to have any type of like sexual romantic feelings towards another man, that this is all this type of rebellious attitude that doesn't to find his identity, but it's just something that he's doing.
0: I I, I really like that scene. Um, fun fact about that scene, because this was filmed in the 90s and CGI was very expensive and they didn't have as much, um, you know, tools that we have today. So Gus Van Sant went kind of low budget style where he m- made mock-ups of magazine covers and enlarge them and put them on um, plexiglass. And he had the actors stand by them. And so each individual magazine and each actor was shot in different takes. And then in post, they were stitched together um, to look like what we see in the film. And I thought that was so innovative and cool. Um, because it, it looks like it was just photoshopped. You know, like how we would do today. So I thought that was really cool. And again, I also like this scene... Um, because it breaks the fourth wall and we, again, we get, we really get to know who Scott is because he talks about how he's going to inherit money and he'll sell his body um, as long as money's involved. And he gives this line where it's like, once you do something for free, that's when you grow wings and you become a fairy. To be honest, I really didn't like Scott um, after the scene just because it showed that you know he came. He comes from a place of privilege. He he's gonna inherit all this money, and you know, and then here you have all these other characters who are doing this for survival, and he's doing this just for kicks, for his own ego. And mm-hmm. we learn that he's doing this because he he wants to make this grand change, you know, um, after he inherits his money. And that to me, that was really annoying.
1: You know, when we move on a little bit more, we act. We hear some stories in the film that. Are definitely not humorous and definitely helps solidify that point of what hustlers have to do to survive and what they have to go through.
0: Where we're in the, is it a Chinese restaurant diner? Yes.
1: So what I what I really liked about this scene was, you know, we have these type of interviews with other characters and they're played by real life street hustlers that Gus Van Sant had. Um, taken into this film, and they were providing these stories of their experiences mm-hmm. hustling. And we have two different stories that are told by these real hustlers. And something that we were discussing before mm-hmm. was how Sant um, was talking about how this queerness, homosexuality was you know forced upon these characters because they have to hustle and have these Johns that they service to survive. And so then we have these two stories by these actual hustlers that Mm. talk about their experiences and how they were abused by John specifically and how they were raped by one of their clients and This type of experience that we see of what hustlers have to go through, you know, that, you know, they're hustling to survive, but that survival comes at a cost of, you know, losing their life and, you know, losing their humanity. And so it was, it was, I really like the Mm -hmm. authenticity of including those two documentary style interviews.
0: I think this is what makes it also kind of like new queer cinema, because again, it's interjecting another different style um, into the narrative. You know, now we get this documentary um, style um, brought in. And again, you're right, I, it brought in authenticity. And from the scene, we see them as victims of homosexuality. But I also saw it more as like, it's kind of showing that this happens that this is a real danger in the hustling game regardless of what sexuality Mm -hmm. you are. I don't know if you saw that
1: as well. Well, yeah, you know, I think that there was a lot of humanization that was brought to hustlers in this scene, you know, because people who have viewed hustlers have always viewed them as just like these, you know, denizens of the street that, you know, don't belong in society. And, you know, they're mistreated and misunderstood mm-hmm. and killed. And so, you know, I think at this time, at the beginning of the 90s, that this was a really important way to humanize hustlers. You know, just this whole narrative and including these authentic stories that are told by these two hustlers. You know, I think that it was it was something that was really important to have in this film, especially with this narrative, for mm-hmm. people to... Have a better understanding of that lifestyle and actually have some, you know, compassion for that for that lifestyle and see on how to make it a more livable profession.
0: Mm. To me, also, I don't know if you saw as well. This scene also was maybe the most trans. Not, yeah, I thought it was really mm-hmm. transgressive.
1: Yeah, it, I think it goes back to what you were saying about how this scene was very reminiscent of like a of the New Queer Cinema films that we've been watching, mm-hmm. you know, and how transgressive those mm-hmm. films were. You know, this definitely felt confrontational, especially with that fourth wall breaking this interview where we have, mm-hmm. you know, these two that are looking into the camera, looking to the audience, and it was very confrontational and just their the stories that they were telling. So, yeah, you know, I completely agree with that. Mm -hmm.
0: Let's get into the real heart of the movie. Um, Act two, when we get onto the road, starts off at the campfire scene. And this is one of the most important scenes in the movie to me. It's one of my favorite scenes.
1: I completely agree. And there's a lot behind the scene that you shared with me, Alina. And I know that the listeners at home will definitely appreciate um, a lot of the impetus behind what was revealed during the campfire scene. So um, if you want to discuss exactly what happens during that scene.
0: Yeah. So during this scene, we have Mike and Scott, uh In this very, like, kind of romantic setting, in a way, in the desert, and you have the campfire. And then we have this really touching scene where Mike confesses that he loves, that he loves Scott, and how he says, even though you don't pay me, I love you. And then we have Scott saying, I only have sex with men for the money, and that men can't love. This scene wasn't originally supposed to happen. Uh, Originally, Gus Van Sant wrote it where... Mike just wanted to have sex, or he was bored. It wasn't supposed to be this emotional scene. But River Phoenix really pushed to have this scene, pushed for his character to have this gay desire to have to be homosexual. And they're all having a party one night. And I think uh, River Phoenix was off to the side, scribbling down the scene, rewriting it. And then he showed it to Gus Sand. and he was saying, "This is who my character is. This is the defining moment for my character and Gus Van Sant went with it. Keanu Reeves already went along with it and it made it into the film. And this is a scene that even Todd Haynes said in a recent interview that made the movie successful.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with that too. You know, I think without this scene, my own private Idaho wouldn't be the new queer cinema temple that it is like this scene Mm -hmm. is what, really transformed the, transforms the movie into, like, a really queer film. Mm-hmm. And it was really important that River Phoenix pushed for it. Okay. And it was something that we were discussing earlier about how, um, up until this point, these characters were victims of homosexuality, mm-hmm. being hustlers and having to sleep with men for money. But this is the first time we actually have a character reveal himself to be queer, and mm. it definitely, what you were telling me, reclaims that queerness and he's no longer this type of victim because of the profession that he has, but he mm-hmm. actually has this connection with another man that he loves. And I, I completely agree that it was important for this to be added into the film, to be redeveloped in the film. Mm-hmm.
0: Then we cut to in front of a trailer, where we discover it's Mike's brother, Richard.
1: Yeah, so it's a really strong emotional scene for River Phoenix and his relationship with his quote-unquote brother. And it's a very interesting dynamic between him and his brother. And what we find out throughout the scene is that his brother is actually his father, which is something that... Um, Mike knew all along had suspected and really understanding that definitely helps understand their type of um, difficult dynamic because there is a lot of emotion between these two characters and it's not really a lot of loving relationship between these two and that familial bond, but there's a lot of tension between them.
0: Hmm. So we find out in that scene that, well, where Mike, where Richard gives Mike this bloody postcard, and we find out that his mom is staying at this, that the at this inn, this family tree inn, right? And so we go to that scene where they're at this hotel, and we meet Hans again.
1: Yeah, so um, they go there looking for Mike's mom. They find out that she's no longer working there, but when they're gathering information, they run into Hans, who had transported both Scott and Mike from Seattle to Portland, and he wants to proposition them. So it seems like perfect opportunity. They're at this hotel, and from the information, they find out that... um, Mike's mom had moved to Italy to look for her own family. You know, they're obviously going to need some money to be able mm-hmm. to go from Idaho to Italy. Perfect opportunity is arranged to earn some money. And then we get to our very first sex scene. I definitely wanted to get your interpretation of the way that on uh, stylized the sex scene between Hans, Mike, and Scott.
0: So the sex scenes, I personally really love them. I don't think they're the type of sex scenes, the transgressive sex scenes that we see in mm-hmm. new queer cinema, because they're very they're staged, right? They're taken, they're cut as if they're just still snap snapshots of a moment, right? Mm-hmm. They're like pictures. Um, posed pictures of Mike, Scott, and Hans in these erotic sexual positions. And to Mm. me, it kind of elevated queer sex as a high art form by posing Mm. them this way. But at the same time, does does it take back from that experimental, authentic, and transgressive nature of new queer cinema
1: well i personally think it does you know we've had so many films that show queer people and sexual acts and it's very authentic the way that their sex is portrayed and so we get that authenticity that shows queer sex unabashedly without shame and so I really did enjoy the way that he had stylized these sex scenes because I completely agree, they elevate queer sex to a high art. And Mm -hmm. I felt like that was such, um, that was such a receptive way to get stars like Keanu Reeves and River Phoenix to perform these scenes because it becomes something other than queer sex it becomes this type of art form that can be explained as we're you know we're performing art I think it's something that is you know it's I think it's a lot more palatable for people Mm
0: -hmm. and we see again the stylized sex scenes as we're in Rome you know with so when we get to Rome, Scott meets this woman, Carmella, and he falls in love with her and they have sex, right? And so at first, before this, I was like, oh God, they're going to have sex. And is it, is Gus Van going to show a real like sex scenes between them because they're heterosexual? And like, is he trying to go for the mainstream audience? But no, he stylized it the same way as he did with the threesome with Hans. And so I thought that was also really beautiful and important to show that, you know, both these, you know, both these sex scenes are are artful. They're beautiful depictions um, to be captured in the moment. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I um, completely agree with that. You know, I think it would be it wouldn't be suitable if he had a stylized sex scene between with that threesome versus this heterosexual sex scene between Carmela and Scott. Um, I, it would definitely send a different type of message with Mm -hmm. what he was presenting. And, you know, if he's going to keep with this aesthetic throughout the film, then it makes complete sense that he would continue to use that same style shooting that sex scene with Carmel and Scott.
0: Mm -hmm. And so in in Rome, we find out that Mike's mother is in there and she went back to America a few years ago. And at this point, I think we're all in agreement where it's like, Mike, your mother's just lost and you're never going to find her. Um, But then we have a really emotional scene as Mike is crying and Scott is holding him. That was was heartbreaking to me. And so there's a lot in Rome that happens, but mainly I think the main point to take from Rome is that we see Keanu Reeves, Scott's character, reconforming to the heteronormative lifestyle. Yeah.
1: It's like he was finally able to find his, you know, ticket back into that life. You know, he has a suitable Mm -hmm. partner and, you know, this is the type of person that he can see and spending his life with. And he's able to go back to his father and say, "Okay, I'm done with my youthful shenanigans. I've found someone who's suitable for me. And Mm -hmm. I I absolutely hate it the scene where he leaves Mike, he's like, We're I'm going to take some time off and just leaves him in Italy with some money and goes back to Portland. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was really heartbreaking because you can see the shift in their relationship. And, you know, even though it was a non-sexual relationship, you know, we have these two characters who are like brothers and, you know, regardless scott chooses to leave mike
0: like in in Rome, you feel for mike because you realize that he's lose. he just lost two of his connections that kept him grounded
1: yeah
0: you know like he he lost his mother like and he lost now he's losing scott and then we get to this really emotional scene where we're in a hotel and he's with this Italian John, right? And he has this very I don't know, he has this very aggressive episode but it also felt in a way cathartic I don't know, how did you feel about that episode where he's just convulsing on top of the bed and then he collapses?
1: Watching that scene, it was it was heartbreaking for me because I was realizing this is the turning point where he is completely untethered and that going forward, he's not going to have that connection that keeps him stable in in the world, that he's going to be losing all sense of temporality and his episodes are just going to continue at a more violent rate. And it it was hard to watch, honestly.
0: Yeah, this definitely, the scene where Mike is in, the hotel room and Scott leaves. That's definitely the turning point of the film because as we get back to Portland, we see he's picked up by this guy and he's watching Simpsons, this episode of Simpsons, right? Which please tell me if you know anything about the Simpsons or the symbolics of that episode, because I I don't, I, I wasn't sure about that, but he gets into the arms of this new John back in Portland and They're just hugging each other in this very emotional embrace. And you see Mike kind of like breaking down as he's being held and like clinging onto this guy, this stranger, as if he's trying to reform this emotional attachment that he's just lost.
1: You know, I feel like watching that, it's like Mike is trying to find connection with anyone he possibly can because, you know, he's so desperately looking for something to tether him back to reality and to you know his humanity but he's not going to be able to find that with a john and so he's searching for it and he's being much more um you know romantic with these types of people but he's not able to get what Mm -hmm. he needs in return and um something that you had mentioned to me was what was actually going on in that Simpsons episode. And so I really am curious to see how you interpreted it. So in that
0: Simpson, in that Simpson episode, we have Homer cooking burgers on a grill. And then all of a sudden I think Bart is like looking up at the sky and it's like, what is that? And then we, then we see this cloud of this mushroom cloud And we have a beam kind of going down on them. And I think because I haven't seen that episode where it's an alien beaming them up. Right. And we have we then we have Mike laughing at the TV at that. Right. Mm -hmm. And to me, I think because right after this scene, we have Mike on the streets and he's just laughing and he's looking up at this mushroom cloud from the factory. Right. He's laughing and then he's crawling on the sidewalk to his little sleeping bag on the side of the streets um, where shards of glass are. And so what I think that Simpson episode was trying to tell us um, is that essentially Mike is kind of losing his mind here. He's he's lost his mind. He's been taken by aliens and he's no longer of on Earth. He's no longer on the same plane or the same reality that we're in. And he's lost, right? So that's how I saw the symbolism of that Simpson episode. Again, this could be completely reaching, and maybe <laughs> Gus Van Tan is just a huge fan of The Simpsons and wanted to have River Phoenix watch an episode during this moment. No, I
1: really like that, though. That's, that's really fascinating, because that completely fits Mike at this point. You know, it's like his mind is gone. You know, he's been beat mm-hmm. up, so... You know, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it, it's it's heartbreaking to see Mike in this state, you know, in this scene as Mike is laying down. We have pan shot to of a car, a very fancy black car where Scott is sitting inside and all primmed up wearing a suit looking like that kind of like Wall Street rich boy now. Mm-hmm. And, you know. I also think this was a statement that Gus San. this is where the political statement comes in, in this film. And you know, like with a lot of new queer cinema, there's a lot of politics interwoven with the art, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like the the main political message, in my opinion, that this film was trying to make was the polarizing, the gap between the rich and the poor, right, and I think that scene, just that shot really encapsulated.
1: Yeah, I can totally see that, you know, because we have this narrative of hustlers, and we have a character who, you know, wants to rebuke his father, but he knows he's ultimately going to go back to his life of means. And so he's finally gone Mm -hmm. back, he's went ahead and completely absolved himself of the people that he made those connections with the people that he spent his time with on the streets. And he completely dissolves himself of that relationship and treats them as if they are complete strangers to him. And
0: mm-hmm.
1: I, when we get to the scene where Scott and Bob have their confrontation in that upscale restaurant. You know, I really wish that there was a confrontation between Mike and Scott at this point, because I, I would have been Same. really curious to see if he would have been able to absolve himself of his relationship with Mike, especially because, you know, he's with Carmella now. And I really wish we could have seen exactly what would have come of that type of confrontation. Mm
0: hmm. Yeah, I agree. I, I kind of, I figured the reason why we didn't have that confrontation was because I think Mike was kind of already done. He already kind of cut himself loose from those emotional attachments. And and so I think that was the reason. And I think it was also for the emotional impact of, oh, you know, this man is more real, more of a father to me than my dead one. And so they wanted that whole that whole um, confrontation between them and especially because it leads up to bob dying and we get this really intense scene of two funerals that are happening at once one funeral where we have all the hustlers um, screaming in raw emotion and anger over bob's coffin and then we have on the other side Everyone in these fancy suits, these dresses, and this really upscale funeral for Scott's father, Mm -hmm. right? Again, we see this gap between the rich and the poor, you know. um, I think between the campfire scene and the scene in the trailer with Mike's brother, I think this was also an amazing performance by River Phoenix. Mm -hmm.
1: I agree. Because, you know, we've seen as soon as Scott leaves Mike that Mike is going into this type of, you know, catatonic detached state. But, you know, this was really the first time in this third act that he is animated. And, you know, I might have to go back on what I was saying about the confrontation because I felt that even though they're not together you know they're separated and they're different funerals that they're holding but this definitely Mm -hmm. feels like a confrontation from mike to scott you know Mm -hmm. we have this disparity between the rich and the poor and mike is showing scott you know this is where you came from too you know this is part of your life and you know even though we're in this type of hustlers, street life, being poor, you know, we're still sharing these emotions of grief. And I just, I loved that animated performance by River Phoenix. And it felt like it was just a huge, like middle finger to Scott.
0: So after this intense funeral scene, we get Mike back on the long road, this, Long, stunning road that we see throughout the film in Idaho. And we have Mike. He has another narcoleptic episode and he falls down in the middle of the road. And then we have this blue truck stop by the side of the road. And I think, oh, thank God, someone's going to help him. But instead, we have these two men who are stealing, who are pickpocketing off of Mike. And that kind of really just shows this, it's another like cynicism that we see um, in, the, I think Gus Van San was trying to say about the people we'll meet in our life. And then we cut to another car stopping by Mike. And at this point, I'm terrified now. It's like, oh God, what are you going to do now? But instead, the person picks up Mike and puts him in the car. And it drives off and the film ends with the whole title card, have a nice day. And I kind of was like, what the fuck? How can I have a nice day after that? I don't know what's, (laughs) I don't know what just happened, but um, this ending is very, is meant to be left ambiguous. And Mm -hmm. I want to know Nick, what you thought, because for me, I am more of on the optimistic romantic side where I kept going, Oh my God, it's probably Scott who drove back. He He recanted his lifestyle of a rich boy and came back to take Mike and bring him in the car and they'll go off into Idaho. They'll live off their own private lives together in Idaho. That was my romantic ending. So I want to know what your ending was.
1: Well, I certainly love that ending because, you know, even though we're not huge fans of Mm -hmm. Scott, you know, it would be nice to see, you know, one of the people that... Mike actually has a connection with being able to go on and live his life with him. Scott realized the errors of his arrogant and privileged ways. And he decided, okay, well, I actually had a great connection with this guy. Let's go ahead and, you know, make a farm together or something in Idaho. Um, but. You know, I I can be a little bit optimistic too. I know the one thing that I was hoping and realistically I was thinking, well, somebody found this poor guy passed out in the middle of the highway with, you know, no shoes on and, you know, nothing on him other than the clothes on his back. And he's like, okay, I should probably get this guy to a hospital. And that's that's what I was hoping was what was going to happen as this car drives off, Mm -hmm. but you know, it knowing just how this film is with you know, Mike being transported all over the place, you know, I I wouldn't see it as, you know, something nefarious happening or something good happening, you know, because every time mike passes out he ends up somewhere new and i'm just thinking Mm -hmm. okay well this is just the continuation of his journey of ending up in new places trying to find his connection in life and you know just constantly having his narcoleptic episodes so i was like with that ending title card of have a nice day i'm thinking well this is just how we continue on you know this is Mike continuing on, even if it's the, not the most, um, the most normal way, um, the most practical way, but this is him moving on in his life. hmm
0: I think it was supposed to be, it, the reason why I was left open-ended was because I think life is open-ended. The journey in life is open-ended. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how I took it. I wasn't going to mention it, but I think it'll be interesting to mention. It. I'm not going to say what, but there is a deleted scene where you kind of mm-hmm. do get, you know who picks up Mike. You get that ending, that, that kind of definite ending, if you wanted to know. There is a deleted scene.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: However, I would recommend not knowing because I think that's what makes this film far better is this ambiguous ending about where Mike is going on his journey in life now.
1: I agree completely.
0: My Own Private Idaho is one of the stunning masterpieces of new queer cinema. Um, that's why we see it as a 10pole to new queer cinema, because it brought same-sex desire onto the screen as an art form into the mainstream. Um, all these new queer cinema, these queer cinema that we see today is in a way, related to My Own Private Idaho through the way Gus Van Sant brought it to the mainstream in this stylistic art form.
1: And so, you know, when we look at the effect that My Own Private Idaho has had, you know, it's definitely influenced the way of making new queer cinema to make it more of an art form to elevate it. But it's also led to these more mainstream forms of queer film that we have from new queer cinema directors as well as new directors who were influenced by new queer cinema you know right after my own private idaho we've had more mainstream films like bound and a lot of the queer comedies that came out during the late 90s and then you know when we move forward to more mainstream films we get to and Milk, which is another Gus Van Sant movie. And we have more wide releases from theaters of these queer-themed films with all these A-list stars. And so because of the success of My Own Private Idaho, you know, the bankability of these queer themes and films really helped new queer cinema move into the mainstream and create these mainstream films that really helped push the needle for queer representation and queer themes into mainstream films.
0: So that's our deep dive into Gus Van Sant's My Own Private Idol. Though problems of representation continue to exist, especially the lack of authentic representation and representation of queer people of color, Queer Cinema Today still owes it to new queer cinema directors like Gus Van Son and Todd Haynes for pushing for queer stories in an aggressively heteronormative Hollywood. Thank you for staying with us and listening to our take on My Own Private Idaho. Please follow us on all our social handles at QueerQE Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Stay tuned for the exciting content we have for you and for our last episode of this season on friday as we take another deep dive into isaac julian's young soul rebels thanks for listening stay safe and go vote